Hello, and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Jen Cheney, your host for this week. On the program, we'll be talking about the new HBO drama Big Little Lies, starring, among others, Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman. I'll also be talking about the state of award show hosts on television. Our usual podcast regulars, Gazelle Amami and Matt zoller sites are out this week, but I am very pleased to be joined by Vulture Associate Editor and Staff Writer Alex Jung. Hi, Alex. Hi, Jen. And I'm also really happy that Catherine Van Arendonk, a regular Vulture contributor on television, is here as well. Hey, Catherine. Hi. Hello. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Alex. <laughs> Everybody's here. It's a happy family. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about Big Little Lies in just a minute. But first, it is time for this week's prompt, uh, which our regular listeners know is a segment that we do. Sometimes it comes from our listeners. Sometimes it comes from inside Vulture TV Podcast Central that asks us to talk about a favorite show, a favorite character, a favorite moment in TV history. And this week's prompt is name a recent or semi-recent TV villain that you absolutely loved to hate. Alex, I'm going to throw this one to you first. <laughs> okay. Um. You know, when I when I was thinking about this, uh, I realized that it was hard for me to think of TV villains that I loved to hate as much as I just loved. Um, I did. Dude, I had the same problem. <laughs> the same problem. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that's because, like, uh, a part part of it is I think the the way that television is structured in the sense that there aren't clear cut villains often as much on TV as much anymore. Um, mm-hmm. so the ones that are, I was thinking like Eli Pope on Scandal, who I just kind of adore. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like even Shonda Rhimes and company kind of adore. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. which is why, you know, he just keeps, he's now just a series regular. Um, so, so for me, I think the, the place where you really have characters that you love to hate still is reality TV. Um, mm. I think that's that's the only space for me where that Schadenfreude kind of exists because I feel like that's really what propels that that hate watching uh, that you sort of uh, t- get a kind of thrill from. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, I was thinking about RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, the last season was an All Star season, and they had Fifi O'Hara on, and she was extremely controversial controversial during her season itself because she was a former contestant. Um, mm-hmm. and she was, uh, awful during her season and she was trying to do this redemption tour, uh, for the all-star season basically, but she was still kind of awful <laughs> <laughs> and, and the show knew it and the show sort of yeah. kept playing into it. And then she got even angrier because she could feel that she was being, uh, you know, like playing into the narrative that they were constructing. But, but yeah. it was sort of this, like, you can't look away kind of car crash that was happening that was uh, f- you know, fun to watch. Uh, and I, th- I feel like that's really what makes a lot of reality TV villains good is like that kind of uh, schadenfreude where you're shocked at how well they're doing and then you're really waiting for their downfall. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like I was thinking Wendy Pepper in season one of Project Runway and then I think like Omarosa and The Apprentice. You know, I, I feel like sure. those are the characters that really live in that realm for me. I told you we were not going to talk about politics today. Come on. Don't bring up Omarosa. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. <laughs> no, I'm, Is that I'm even joking. possible Kath- now? Yeah. It's not. It's actually not possible. It's not. It's not. Um, <laughs> okay. Catherine, what's your, what's your choice on a villain that you either love or love to hate? 
Okay. Well, I I did not have that, I think, truly brilliant brainwave about the fact that reality TV is where there are still real villains, because I completely understand. And if I were going to pick one from reality TV, it might be Bethany Frankel, who oh. I really mm. hate and also kind of love to hate. But if we're talking about fictional TV... Uh, and again, this was a villain who I was like, why, why am I pretending that I hate? I don't. I just full on absolutely love um, is Boyd Crowder from Justified, who I miss so much. Um, he was played by Walton Goggins, and he was sort of originally conceived of as the like black villain character to go up against Raylan Givens in that show. Um, and instead, he just was so clearly the most interesting, mm. like well-rounded, um, also had, like the charisma that rolled off of that character. Um, he and Raylan clearly were the, the couple that should have ended up together at the end. And it just it was like, I really um, everything about that particular sort of villain structure completely collapsed, right? I mean, it was supposed to be this character who um, is certainly from the beginning neo-Nazi and uh, blew all all kinds of crazy stuff up and violent and didn't treat, you know, just terrible. And yet, by the end of that series, because I think for the exact reason that you were pointing out, um, you're just, you're so invested in who he is and his love interests and um, when he, even when he tries to make a really evil turn, you just, you just, Boyd, why are you, why are you hurting me that way? Um, so, <laughs> so yes, so that I, I, I miss him. And I think he was just one of those classic, um, and the other thing about Boyd that I, that I have to mention is that traditionally in literature, right, there's this idea that the villain is the one who is the most, the best spoken, um, and I think we see that on TV. Oh, that's coming from like Satan and um, Milton in Paradise Lost. Um, and on TV, you see that in a character like Al Swearingen on Deadwood, but it's absolutely Boyd Crowder as well, right? These like sentences would come out of his mouth and mm. you would just think like, keep, keep talking, Boyd. Mm-hmm. Keep talking. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's mine. Devils can be very articulate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, we make this distinction between loving a villain versus loving to hate, because I guess in my mind, I kind of think of them as the same thing. But you're right. There is a difference. There's a, a subtle difference. But my answer to this question, which I'm sure will be wildly unpopular, uh, is <laughs> Joffrey Baratheon on Game of Thrones. Oh. I still actively miss Joffrey, uh, <laughs> even though he was horrible. But I... I I don't miss watching him do the horrible, disgusting things he did because, as mm-hmm. we know, on Game of Thrones, they they push that stuff really hard to degrees that probably are not necessary and are gratuitous. But there was something about Joffrey that he became a symbol for me of just this snotty, privileged child, just that whole kind of archetype. And if I may make a college basketball reference, uh, he just had a face like Grayson Allen on Duke university's basketball team that I just want to just punch like he just thinks he's okay. really entitled <laughs> and so and, I, and there were, I, I took some kind of weird sick pleasure in watching him and like you said before waiting for his downfall which we knew would come yeah. because we knew the the narrative and it was necessary to push the narrative into the different places that it went after that not just because it happened in the books but just because it was necessary but 
But I do kind of miss him. And I, I will say I have nothing against Jack Leeson, the actor who played him. He seems very, very lovely outside of this role. But he it, it's a testament to his performance that uh, I disliked him so, so much in that part. I thought you weren't yeah. going to bring politics into this. <laughs> well, again, as we have established, it's impossible. Impossible not to. No, I mean, I mean, the funny thing was I... I I was also just weirdly thinking about how people are reacting to Donald Trump, too. Like, I do think, well, maybe because he is a reality star uh, for a lot of mm-hmm. people and to me and came out of that, that sure. he, that a lot of people's uh, sort of reaction to him in a lot of ways does feel like this love to hate relationship a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. Even the press conference uh, the other week um is, I think, representative of that. You know, I think the mm-hmm. watching people, even in my office, sort of like watch the press conference and sort of cackle with glee uh, was an interesting thing to to experience for me because I could see how people were sort of relating to this like a TV character almost. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's absolutely true. I think a lot of that also is um, you, you can't, that shock the car crash aspect that you think of when you also Mm -hmm. think of reality TV villains, that sense of like, I cannot believe you just said that. Right. 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 Um, Right. And, and the undeniable pleasure in that shock that you have to confront. Otherwise you're just, otherwise you're just uh, actually taking pleasure out of that horrible thing that he said. And, And there's an element I think that is maybe calculated of, we all spend so much time now going, can you believe this just happened or that just happened that, you take your eye off the ball of some of the other important things that maybe we should be paying attention to and we aren't because course, we're too yeah. talking about that crazy thing that he just said. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, that that's a lot to unpack. I'm, I think we're going to be unpacking that a lot for, for weeks and weeks to come. Uh, yep. So with that said, that was this week's prompt. <laughs> Uh, listeners, if you'd like to weigh in on this week's prompt or if you'd like to suggest a prompt for a future week, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. Next up, we'll be talking about Big Little Lies. The limited series Big Little Lies just debuted a couple of days ago on HBO. It's based on the novel by Leanne Moriarty about the conflicts within and between several mothers in a wealthy community. In the book, the setting is Australia. For HBO, it moves to Monterey, California. We learn two things very early into the first episode, which was on Sunday night. One is that some sort of explosive incident, murder, happens at a fundraiser, a school fundraiser. uh, But we don't know the particulars of it and we don't know who winds up dead. The second thing that happens early in the first episode is we watch as Ziggy, a first grader and the son of Jane, who's played by Shailene Woodley, is accused of physically assaulting a girl in his class whose mother, Renata, is played by Laura Dern. Ziggy denies having hurt the child, and that draws battle lines between those two mothers, as well as Madeline and Celeste, played by Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman, who become Jane's allies. So that's the basic premise of the show. Um, I wanted to start just by talking about our initial reactions to it. And I have to say, I really was taken in by this. You know, a lot of times I'll put on a screener and I sort of, I'll watch it. I'm like, okay, I'll watch the next episode when I get to it. But I flew through like three or four of these in in one mm-hmm. Friday night because I just couldn't stop watching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, the performances in it, I think are, are phenomenal. Um, but honestly, I think that obviously it's called Big Little Lies. That's the name of the novel, but it could easily be called Nevertheless, She Persisted because it's about <laughs> these women who just keep persevering and pushing uh, in ways that are, 
healthy and not so healthy. But um, I'm curious mm-hmm. to hear what you guys have to say. Um, Catherine, I'll start with you first. What did you think about this overall? Yeah, I had a similar reaction uh, in my desire to just continue watching them. Um, I think it it does a really good job, certainly with that first episode of giving you the murder right up front and then um, weaving in these characters so that even when it is being kind of ridiculous, because there are many moments where it is very ridiculous, um, (laughs) you are still like... But, but who got killed? Like, I'm just, I, please tell me. Um, and so that, <laughs> <laughs> so that structure works really well for it. Um, and it was one of the ones, it's a, one of the few shows where I have been watching it and thought like, you know what? It was a book. Like I could just look up the spoiler right now. Um, yeah. So, so that, so that aspect of it, I think definitely, definitely worked for me. I think the other thing that worked for me, um, is just how pretty everything is. I mean, it is, <laughs> mm-hmm. it is so, it is the, the shiniest glossy surfaces, the kind of, I mean, there are just glass windows everywhere. Everyone has these beautiful leather boots on, you know, there is, it, there is a Northern California thing to it that, um, I resonate with, I lived there for a little bit and lot in a house like that. <laughs> and, and so like you watch it and you sort of watch the cliffs and the ocean and that, so that part of it also uh, felt just like I wanted to keep watching and with my mouth kind of agog um, at all of those landscapes. I just yeah. really wanted yeah. to know what the real estate prices of all of those houses. Oh were. my God. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually I'm working on a piece uh, about the setting of the show. Uh, and, and I feel like it's part of this very specific niche genre, uh, beautiful people behaving badly while living near the ocean, which is a genre <laughs> mm-hmm. that I really am kind of into. Um, yeah. But Alex, I think you were, you were going to say something um, when Catherine was talking about the, the murder I, sort of structure. I was because I it doesn't work for me personally. I hmm. sort of mm-hmm. am not super into the puzzle box. Uh, it feels like a little Frankenstein onto itself um, where mm-hmm. there were moments where I sort of, especially as the episodes go on, where I kind of forget that there's a murder that's going to happen. Um, yeah. And I sort of, I, I think I almost uh, would have preferred just sort of starting with, and I understand that this is the show is mimicking the structure of the book from what I understand. I haven't read the book, so I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, I think I, I would have preferred it without the flashback, without the kind of Greek chorus of uh, the people in the small town um, and, and begin with this sort of incident between the two children, uh, alleged incident, I guess, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where right. it's sort of like the slap almost, right? It just That's what it felt like. Yeah. Where it's like right. this incident that happens of violence that no one actually sees, and then it creates this huge maelstrom of conflict between uh, the mothers and then eventually the fathers, too. And I sort of, I, I think I would have liked to have seen it go from there and then escalate into whatever is going to happen with the murder, which I assume is mm-hmm. what's, what the end game is here. Because right. I, I don't know, I, th- I think the, the constant flashing back sort of felt... Uh, like grafted on in some way that I wasn't into. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. Um, Certainly as the episodes go on, that device gets more tired. And I think for me, the reason that it worked, the flashback 
or at least the first episode works with that murder structure mm. is that you don't know any of these characters right. yet. And I mm-hmm. like having that murder hook. Like I love a show where the first thing I see is a detective <laughs> showing up at a scene like that. Is, <laughs> that's my favorite thing. So I like having that, that opening question, but I totally agree with you because it does this interview structure where we're getting these like commentary of all these other parents and teachers that continues to come back. Once, right. We already know those characters that starts to get a lot more tired that I completely agree. with. Right. Yeah. Right. And maybe maybe they yeah. could have split the difference better and just done it in the first episode and then left the device. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The murder part of it did draw me in, as Catherine just said, but it, it ultimately it really is, especially as you get to the third episode going forward, uh, secondary. Um, it's really more about the relationships between these women, how they. Uh, doggedly defend their children and and also there's the issues that they're dealing with internally right. uh, and I was really transfixed by all of that as well but I think the part about the m- the murder construct that worked least effectively is that Greek chorus yeah. because they they don't seem entirely necessary I mean sometimes they have funny little one-liners and yeah. the way this works for people who haven't seen it is is these are basically like police interviews with other people in the community who are telling you things about the main characters uh, to to maybe give you a window into how they're perceived. And I guess that window is somewhat important, but I feel like you could kind of pick up on it in other ways. Uh, it feels like a little bit repetitive after a while. It definitely feels repetitive. It also stretches the plausibility a lot after that initial. I mean, the first questions that they ask these people are like reasonable police questions that you're hearing them. They're like, who are the people there and whatever. And by episode four or five, the it's like everything, everyone knew that it, when it happened on that one Thursday at 1030 p.m. Like, I mean, no one would remember that level yeah. of detail about it. So, yes. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And they're very yeah. willing to just say all kinds of shit oh, about yeah. each other. Right. <laughs> More so than I would think perhaps you would in a police interview. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Especially when you're that rich and without a lawyer present. <laughs> yes, where right. are all these people's lawyers? Especially the principal. The school would right. definitely have yes, made that absolutely. have a lawyer. Right, yeah. right. Well, and that's another issue. And and, and we're picking it apart and... and uh, I actually really like the show, but so I'm just narrowing. Oh, I, I also like enjoy first. it for the record. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to the good stuff uh, in a moment. Um, but the other thing is the the whole way that uh, Ziggy gets accused of um, potentially hitting or, or choking or whatever he has allegedly done to Amabella, um, Lord Dern's mm-hmm. daughter. It's it's done out in the open with the whole class and all the parents standing there. Yes. you would never do this that would way. Never, um, ever. Especially in a community like that, where you know you have these kinds of parents who are very vigilant and, uh, you know, sensitive. Uh, that is not the way that that situation would have been handled, and it would have been. It definitely would have been a lawsuit. There should be something. A, there should be a mom fact check of this show. Ooh, I like that idea. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, I think. You were going to sort of talk about escapism, right? And I I wanted Mm -hmm. to just connect that with what we were talking about before, because it feels like those two things are both very much at work in this show. And I think a lot of shows that tend to get called escapist, on the one hand, your brain is picking it apart, right? Your brain is saying, like, they would never have called them out that way. No one would ever respond this way in a police interview where you're working on it. And on the other mm-hmm. hand, there's another part of your brain that's like, I don't care. 
I don't care. I'm watching these beautiful people. And so I think that that actually is a, a, a big part of how this show actually works is somehow managing to get both of those sides of your brain functioning at the same time. And they are so um, beautiful. So are. beautiful. In their coats. Yes. The, well, the, uh, yes. the other thing is, though... I, I hesitate to characterize the show as pure, pure escapism because Mm -hmm. there's definitely uh, in these characters, there are women that I recognize, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just and and issues that a lot of women deal with that are are really serious and are, are really beautifully drawn out. And it's been interesting reading some of the reviews either, you know, written for media sites or just written on social media. And, and I don't know if you guys have picked up on this at all, but I have found there to be a real difference between the way men write about the show versus the way women do. Hmm. Um, I won't name any names, but one male reviewer at another outlet wrote a really scathing review and kept talking about how annoying everyone on the show was, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And then even hmm. men who who have liked it have used words to describe it like it's a beach read and it's trashy and things like that. Wait, really? And yes. Oh, what? <laughs> and now, and I realized we, we published a- They need to pick up a, their trash TV better. <laughs> <laughs> We published a yeah. Big Little Lies drinking game on the site, so I, I don't mean to sound hypocritical because I do recognize that there is that escapism element. But I also think it's really it, it diminishes what the show is to talk about it in, in just those terms. And I found that women tend not to do that. And a lot of men that I at least I've read so far have. And I think mm. that's interesting. I mean, I hmm. think the most compelling part of the show for me, without giving a lot away, because you do see it in the in the first episode, is the relationship between Nicole Kidman and her husband alexander skarsgård mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. it's terrifying to watch in a lot of it ways is. um mm-hmm. in like a deeply visceral way and it doesn't at all feel like escapism or right. uh or like uh i mean this is this is a show that is i think actively dealing with uh what domestic violence looks like in a marriage um of mm-hmm. this uh, of people with this much money too you know and it sort of collides all of these different aspects together in this way that I found really for me that was the most compelling part of the show so far that I've mm-hmm. seen. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Oh uh, and Reese, and, I love her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk about Reese Witherspoon since you brought her up. Uh I think this is one of her best performances and maybe even the best performance totally. she's ever given. She's so good. Um, because yeah. I mean, a lot of people are talking about this in Tracy Flick terms, uh, and and I do see where that comes from. It does have a full circle sort of feeling, but it's uh, there's so much more depth and nuance mm-hmm. to it. And as mm-hmm. soon as she walked on the screen, I was like, I know that woman. Mm-hmm. I know women who are maybe not quite as uh, aggressive, but like <laughs> mm-hmm. they need to be involved in every little thing at school, and they know everybody else's business. And sometimes it's you know in a nice way, but but. That's that's a person that I know. Mm-hmm. Many people yeah. that I know. Maybe mm-hmm. even a little bit of me, let's be honest. So <laughs> so I it's just so recognizable, but then you start peeling and she starts peeling the layers away from this woman and uh there's so much going on there. And I I have always loved Reese Witherspoon when her inner Bunsen burner flames are just turned up as high as possible mm-hmm. and I feel like you get a lot of that in this show. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean I think um that sense of her as being more more complicated than the outer, the initial surface, I think a lot of that also has to do with um, she benefits, unlike some of the other characters, the female characters in this show, she benefits from having 
more than one relationship lens on her, right? Mm-hmm. Because she has a husband as well as an ex-husband, mm-hmm. and they sort of show off these different and create these different angles for her mm-hmm. to interact with people. But then she also has a much older teen daughter and a much younger six-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. And those similarly then pull her in different parenting directions and different interactions with other, you know, um, parents that she's trying to meet with at school and she's trying to manage the stuff that her 16 or I don't remember how old her older daughter is. Um, and so I think or 16. one of, yeah, one of the reasons that character works so well is that she just actually has all of these different threads pulling on her. Whereas, um, you know, somebody like the Shailene Woodley character has a lot of stuff going on clearly a lot of stuff going on under right. there <laughs> but she has fewer outlets for us to see that except for like angry beach running right right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and pulling out her earbuds <laughs> right yeah yes yeah she she um, Woodley, um and this is not a, not a, a commentary on her performance at all because I, I i thought she was good too but it did take an adjustment because i know that she's supposed to be a younger mother but, you know, I feel like it wasn't that long ago. Well, it wasn't that I was watching her in Divergent and Spectacular Now. And so I still think of her in some ways as being much, much younger right. um, than she actually is. So that kind of after the first episode, I was OK with it. But that took me a little bit of uh, yeah, pivoting. Yeah. The show also, mm-hmm. it, like Catherine, you're sort of, I feel like, implying this. I feel like the show kind of forgets about her sometimes. Uh, a little bit. You know, she she does kind of disappear into the background a little bit and maybe that's the point because uh, she is an outsider and she is the new uh, mom on the block um, but it does sort of feel like you lose a sense of her often it's unusual for that structure though right because I think um, traditionally when you begin a show or a book or some kind of narrative right. with having a character come in from the outside, they are your audience stand in. Right? right. And that's really how she's acting in that first episode. It's like new mom, mm-hmm. new school. Hello, let's introduce all the characters, right. exposition fairy, right? right? That's sort of the job that she plays. Right. And then usually you would then follow that character through and then she would continue to be your anchor throughout the series. And boy, is that not the case because it's Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and yeah. coincidentally, uh, Witherspoon and Kidman also produced um, are among the producers on the show. Uh, so, you, you know, I, I'm sure that part of their uh, what appealed to them was the the roles that they were going to get to play. Um, sure. In yeah. this. Uh, and I, I want to mention another scene. And this is is goes back to what Alex was talking about with Nicole Kidman. And I want to be careful not to spoil too much for our listeners who haven't maybe at this point watched the whole show. Um, but there's a scene, I want to say maybe in the fourth episode, um, or maybe it's the fifth, but where Nicole Kidman's character, who used to work, and she doesn't anymore because she takes care of um, her two sons, but she she starts kind of voluntarily helping Reese Witherspoon, uh, who is her character is... Uh, very involved in trying to um, stage Avenue Q, which for some reason that just cracked me up. Yeah. Like, every time she walks into <laughs> know, that theater and the puppets are there, I just die. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, Taking Nicole Kidman gets to kind of speech. yes, exactly. Puppets, puppets are people too, man. Um, so <laughs> she uh, she gets an opportunity to kind of show what she can do as a professional for the first time in a while. And there's a scene that happens after that where she's talking to Reese Witherspoon in the car. And Nicole Kidman mm-hmm. is just so phenomenal in the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, again, another one of those moments where, where 
here's this woman who is she's clearly very un, unsure of herself and doesn't realize how incredibly competent she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the moment she is. And then she takes herself out of it. And she's there's so much doubt there. And that just was so relatable and recognizable and just so wonderfully captured by Nicole Kidman. I thought that was. Yeah, great. I, th- I think what I like about her performance so much is the fact that uh, like I didn't like it at first because uh, mm-hmm. I was like, what is this accent? You're whispering a lot. Um, but then yeah. it sort of like uh, it, it sort of unfolds in this really nice way the longer yeah. the show goes on. And I think it's worth sort of investing the time in watching that for to see that. But can we I talk agree. about her accent? What is going on there? What is going on? I have no idea. It, it is I, very tenuous. Yeah. I thought that she was just being we were to assume that she was Australian. Like I, I, I've, heard, okay. I've heard her do. I've heard her do more American accents. Oh, no. She, that she were... is a talented actor who I know can do American <laughs> accents. So that's why I thought maybe, I don't know. I heard it enough that I felt like maybe it was a deliberate choice. Well, here's, I, I mean, here's, at least it also sounds, everything Alexander Skarsgård says also sounds slightly not quite American. Uh-huh. So at least they kind of match each other a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> Here, okay, but I do want to go back to the Nicole Kidman scene in the car that you were talking about, Jen, um, because I, yeah. that also really struck me. And that is a thread that, that this show is definitely thinking about a lot, this sense that, okay, we have these women, they have these kids, and they are so involved in this school, and they are caught between all of these kinds of um, identities, parenting identities versus working identities. And I so completely feel that sense of how relatable that is. I mean, I absolutely. My question is, at what point the setting of this show, and I, it's possible that because I, because I lived in Northern California for a little bit and like as a grad, as a very impoverished grad student. And so saw like these kinds of women walking around and thought like, look how much food they're eating. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All organic. Um, (laughs) I know. At what point does the intense amount of privilege that these characters have at some point slightly undercut Mm -hmm. the kinds of messages that they are also discussing about? Mm -hmm. Um, And I look that particularly Celeste, there is no question that that is an incredibly wrenching, sympathetic character who is illustrating domestic abuse in a way that I think is really important and complicated and, and worthwhile and all of that kind of stuff. And at the same time, when you're talking about it, it's hard to look at these women who are so, so wealthy in their mm-hmm. gorgeous homes and not then also look back at the rest of the world and feel like, okay, there's we're just there's a little bit of a disconnect happening here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's maybe something about the, the muted color palette um, and just yeah. the, because I, I think I would have liked more humor or like a little bit more. Yes. Uh, self-awareness yeah uh, yeah a little like uh, you know not to say that it should be like girls or something like that but i you know i sort of appreciate how girls is uh aware of its characters uh respective privileges right Mm -hmm. and i think well certainly has become more that way yes yeah but it it doesn't feel like this show is or is very invested in teasing that apart as far as i can tell 
Yeah. Um, that might also have something to do with the translation from Australia also. I certainly mm. can't read the original setting, so I don't know, you know, it, how that would have played out in the book versus, like, the ridiculous Carmel Monterey setting that they're in in the United States. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I also wonder, I mean— I think this would have been an issue under any circumstance. But again, watching it, if we can bring it back to politics for a third time (laughs) uh, in the context of, you know, coming out of this election and the sense that a lot of white people, especially and white women, especially like we're totally not clued into what's going on and and, and oblivious. And and these are probably those kinds of women. Um, Yep. But and certainly there were times when I'm watching the show, I'm like, what are you upset about? Look out the damn window. The ocean's right there. Everything's going to be fine. So I I have those same kinds of feelings. And and there have been many shows, maybe to a less extreme degree, that have done the same thing. For example, Parenthood. I mean, they all lived in beautiful houses and had their family problems. I mean, a lot of family dramas on TV, Mm -hmm. um, they tend to take place uh, in these houses that are just ludicrous. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Even the Simpsons live in a really nice house, um, (laughs) if you think about it. Uh, But anyway, uh, but I think my takeaway from it, and they don't really hit the nail on the head too hard, um, but is that it doesn't matter how much you have. If you're unhappy, you're going to be unhappy. And so this sure. idea of of accruing wealth and, and being in these beautiful settings like is, is meaningless if uh, you're being abused by your husband or you're unhappy with your choices or you feel like your kids don't love you, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think it's really complicated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely. And I'm still trying to kind of work out how I feel about all that. Hmm. Um, but Catherine, I know something you wanted to talk about is, you know, we, we talk so much about the mothers because the show is principally about mothers. But what's up with the dads? Yeah, it feels well, like they're not I doing think... a lot to help <laughs> <laughs> at all. So at, in January, when the Women's March happened and there was a New York Times article that went around that was yep, yep. Um, like, all these Montclair dads had to stay home and take care of their kids while the ladies went out and marched. Uh, and was rightly um, widely considered to be ridiculous. And I think the the yeah. editor who approved that actually then later came out and said, like, yep, that was my bad. That was, that was really a <laughs> mistake. Um, it was it was a little bit I did get a little bit of that uh, sensation watching this show, or at least I would have if there was ever any moment when the dad's did actually watch their kids in any meaningful way. Um, It's a little, I mean, it's obviously, again, very different because of the level of privilege that all these families have, because they all also have lots and lots of childcare, which is mostly invisible. Um, You do occasionally Mm -hmm. hear the women say things like, is your nanny there? And they're like, of Mm -hmm. course, my nanny's here. What are you talking about? I would ever not have my nanny here. Um, And so that is there a little bit. Nevertheless, you get this sense that the fathers, um, particularly the Alexander Skarsgård character, who is kind of is perpetually wanting to have been consulted and yet never is um, and wishes that he were involved, but mostly as a form of control rather right. than as parenting. Um, and so it just feels like the uh, the gender dynamics are a little bit. Um, skewed away from anything like an equal platform. Um, Adam Scott does spend right. a lot of time biking, apparently, so he's you know got that going on. But yeah. and growing a beard, 
Oh, yes. Yeah. That, I mean, which is exhausting as far as I could tell. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. with with his character, though, I mean, I felt like he was at least kind of having conversations about the kids and, yes. and, and dealing yeah. with things. Absolutely. And, and I almost I almost took away from it maybe that uh, Madeline Reese Witherspoon's character is so overbearing that he kind of has to tread lightly in terms mm-hmm. of deciding how involved he wants to get or feels like he can get. Mm-hmm. And there was Completely. another scene, and, I, and these are small things, Grant, I grant you. You're, I think you're overall very correct. But there's another scene where um, Renata's husband, uh, Renata, Lord, Lord Dern, who I can watch Lord Dern do anything, by the way, like anything, yeah. for like hours on end. Uh, same. Yes. Um, but she is extremely, I mean, she's worse, really, in a lot of ways than Witherspoon's character. She just mm-hmm. loses her, her mind about things in ways that probably agitate her daughter. Um, and her husband has like a sort of very brief conversation with Amabella, their daughter, and is much more kind of, he, and initially he comes across as like, almost like a, a, to me, like an angry Hollywood producer type of person. Mm-hmm. I think that was just an assumption I made. Um, but he has this very kind of calming conversation with the daughter and and it's sort of uh kind of trying to alleviate the situation and i thought okay well maybe he's there's more to that guy than i thought but you don't see a lot of that but it is something it it, it demonstrates that there's a father kind of being involved on some level but yeah i think for the most part and maybe it's just as a function of the show is about these women and mm-hmm. in this particular situation uh it's not it doesn't speak for all marriages in the way that all parents should function or do function, but this is this is this particular portrait. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't think that there's anything about this show that is saying like, look, this is the healthy marriage that everyone <laughs> should try to emulate perfectly, right? So, of course, it would make sense that there are all kinds of ways that that um, that that expresses itself. It was actually just another uh, plausibility thing for me because I think you see at the school functions or at school pickup and drop off. Actually, there are quite a lot of dads in the background Mm. um, Mm -hmm. sometimes, or like they're like planning things. And yet as characters, I mean, I'm certainly not complaining about the fact that we have this show that has all of these really charismatic um, magnetic women who are the leads. It just also feels like the men are, they, they kind of wish that they could get the men out of the out of the scene at some point because they're just not ever um helping or at least you know when they're not actively being domestic abusers uh <laughs> yeah so. Although I, I will say within the context of like school stuff and this is based on my limited experience i have a uh a now 10 year old uh who's in fourth grade but when I go to PTA meetings and when they have room parents, I would say 9.5 times out of 10, it's a mom hmm. and it's oh, women yeah. that, that oh, are yeah. there. Um, so that part of it, I think there's some truth in that maybe. Yeah, it's probably also what I'm responding to is my awareness that it reflects the reality that I wish weren't true. <laughs> so, yeah, right. So, right. yeah. <laughs> so this is always something that's hard to predict, but I'm wondering what you guys think in terms of whether... Big Little Lies is going to find an audience. Like, do you think that this is going to be a show that people will be talking about, that people will be watching, or is it going to fly more under the radar? I don't know. Who hmm. Alex, do you have a thought? I have Alex no is idea. shaking his head. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it's one of those things. That, I mean, this obviously they have these really big movie stars in, in this show, and in theory, that should be a draw. Um, Jean-Marc Vallée is the director of of these episodes, and he has done some, you know, some great films. Um, but, you know, you look at 
the young pope, which generated a lot of social media chatter and and memes and and things like that. But in terms of viewership, I don't think it did particularly well. Right. And no. I, I also yeah. think it's the kind of show that didn't feel like I have to. There was an urgency around it that you had to t- tune in, and also they rolled it out in this weird way. Right. Where it was I on think Sunday that, and Monday night. Exactly. I which think is confusing. that really hurt it too. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so I think that's yeah. a show that people will catch up with later than maybe they didn't feel like they had to watch it as it was happening. But because of the – to go back to what we talked about before, the murder the aspect murder. of this. Hmm. Yes. That might bring people in. It's true. People, people love murder. murder. <laughs> I certainly do. And I, I, truly, I really do believe that it um, – I really believe that it's going to be a better, stronger hook for something like this in the beginning, even if it wears on you by the middle, right? We have talked about, you're sort of past it at that point. You don't need it anymore. Um, so I think there's that element of it that I, I agree with you is likely to be a lot hookier for people. Um, I think also the, I mean, right. Part of the problem with the young Pope is you watch it and you're like, this is really weird guys. Like anyone really weird. <laughs> Me? No. Okay. Um, and this is, I mean, Big Little Lies is legible, right, in a way that, that young Pope is, is not immediately um, mm. open yeah. to people. Mm-hmm. Um, not, yeah. It's not just legible in that sense of like, all right, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, awesome. Like, I'm with you. It gives you that. But then it also gives you characters that you can recognize. It gives you um, a story that you sort of want to follow. It gives you a setting that is that sort of delicious combination of recognizable but inaccessible to us, most normal people. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's much more likely to have a following than, than certainly Young Pope, um, in, in my sense, anyhow. Yeah, it is more accessible, that is for sure. Between this and Feud, though, there's a lot of Oscar winners on these shows. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and catty women. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> true women fighting women but also being (laughs) friends (laughs) um yeah no i i i'm down for that i'm i'm here for women fighting women but also being friends (laughs) i think i will say i think my only draw the only drawback for me as far as um whether or not this is going to find an audience is the question that i raised a little bit earlier and the sort of unfortunate coincidence of the current cultural moment. I think if this had come out a year ago, I would say absolutely no question. A billion people are going to watch it and Mm. it's going to be like, who, like who kill who's dead and blah, blah, blah. And right now it is a little bit hard to watch and not just feel like there are other things, problems that none of these women seem to care about. I mean, I think there is, um, there is a little bit of a sort of twinge of guilt as you watch it, that you're letting yourself well, care about these incredibly wealthy women. Um, I agree with you, and I feel drawback. that I feel that way, too, and I agree. However, I feel like there's the exact kind of people who don't have the twinges of guilt who mm-hmm. are like, God, can people stop talking about this and just post puppies on Facebook again? And there are a lot of those people. They will love the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep, I mean, they I mean, will not. They will have no guilt whatsoever. Okay. Well, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They will watch it while looking out the window at their own ocean views and be like, "This show is the best." It gets me. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week's topic. We'll be right back with the aria. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's aria. This week, it's my turn. In less than a week, the Academy Awards will air live on ABC. 
When they do, they will be hosted by Jimmy Kimmel of ABC's Jimmy Kimmel Live. Lately, that sort of network synchronicity has become a standard feature of the award show hosting circuit. James Corden, host of CBS's The Late Late Show with James Corden, oversaw the festivities at both the Tonys last year and the Grammys last week on CBS. Jimmy Fallon emceed the Golden Globes last month on NBC, home of The Tonight Show with, yes, Jimmy Fallon. Kimmel hosted the Emmy Awards last September when the TV awards ceremony was broadcast on ABC. But this fall, the Emmys will not be handled by a Jimmy or a James. Instead, they will be hosted by Stephen Colbert of CBS's Late Show with Stephen Colbert. In case you were wondering, yes, the Emmys will be broadcast on CBS this year. What's happening here is pretty straightforward. When one of the network... Bleh. When one of the networks broadcasts a widely viewed live television event, they are seeing it as an opportunity to promote their own talent. It's a smart strategy for them and an easy way to stay in the good graces of their late-night talk show hosts. Oh, and it's something else, too. Incredibly boring. Look, I get that award shows like the Oscars or the Grammys are silly, inside baseball exercises and glam cami, self-congratulatory, self-promotional nonsense that does not even necessarily recognize outstanding achievement. But for some crazy reason that I will eventually get to the bottom of after extensive therapy, I enjoy watching them. I'm always excited by the prospect that the Oscars or the Grammys might deliver something unexpected and genuinely entertaining, even though almost every year I am proven dead wrong about that. But turning every major trophy show into yet another platform for the guy currently pushing take your pick, mean tweets, carpool karaoke, or thank you notes makes the whole exercise feel even more predictable than it already does. And predictable is the last thing any live TV event should be. Because the Emmy ceremony is the only one that switches networks every year, it has operated on the promote-your-own-talent principle for nearly the past decade. When Fox aired it in 2015, Brooklyn Nine-Nine's Andy Samberg handled hosting duties. When NBC had it the year before, Seth Meyers, in his first year as host of his own NBC late-night talk show, got the job, and so on. Similarly, before Corden took on the Grammys for CBS this year, it had been overseen for a while by LL Cool J, who may be known for insisting he's going to knock you out, but who also happens to be a star of CBS's NCIS Los Angeles. Even though the Academy Awards, the prestige drama of award shows, has been broadcast on ABC since the mid-70s, it hasn't played quite the same promotional games, perhaps because its organizers have always thought it was too important to succumb to the usual television tricks. When other award shows go low, the Oscars, they go high. And sometimes they've gone a little bit nutty, at least by Oscar standards. On several occasions over the past decade, the Oscars tried to shake things up by choosing hosts that were a little edgy and might appeal to the young viewers crucial to bumping up the Oscar ratings. That's how Jon Stewart, Seth MacFarlane, and the ultimate wildcard choice, James Franco and Anne Hathaway, wound up hosting. Kimmel marks something of a break from that tradition. Given the habit of putting late-night talk show hosts in the award show MC seat, he was the least surprising choice that the show's producers could have made. But the lack of surprise at the Oscars or any of these ceremonies isn't even the most disappointing part of this trend. What's worse is that it shuts out more diverse voices from getting the chance to have their talents elevated on widely viewed shows like these. When the late-night talk show circuit went through a changing of the guards in 2014 and 2015, a lot of people were disappointed that every single desk chair was given to another white dude. If the stages at all the award shows start to get handed to them by default as well, that means there's another space where we won't see women or people of color getting the chance to entertain in such a high-profile way. That's important from the perspective of inclusion, but it's also important from the plain old standpoint of fun. It's more fun to mix these things up a little. 
The Oscars, which had Chris Rock as host last year, is usually pretty good about trying to do that, even if your mileage may vary on the results. Kimmel will probably be fine, if not electrifying, as the host of this year's Academy Awards. And maybe this recent tendency to go with whoever's on your network at 1130 or 1230 at night is just temporary. In a recent interview with Vulture's own D. Lockett, James Corden implied that he doesn't plan to reprise his role as Tony Awards. Let me start that again. In a recent interview with Vulture's own D. Lockett, James Corden implied that he doesn't plan to reprise his role as Tony Awards host this year, which means that at least that spot may open to a non-late night regular. I think that's good, not because I have some massive bone to pick with the Jimmys, James, or Steven. It's good because there's a lot of talent out there that deserves to get a chance in the spotlight. This is America, damn it, where we all have the right to life, liberty, and, if we're funny enough, the pursuit of telling jokes at the Academy Awards that will be widely criticized on Twitter. At least, that's the dream anyway. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at CheneyJ. I'm Alex Jung, and you can find me on Twitter at E underscore Alex Jung. And I'm Catherine Van Ehrenbach, and you can find me at K Van Ehren. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.